Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diodora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 32, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and world number 25, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diodora.com. He was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and attended and graduated from Stanford University in 1972. Armed with one of the greatest serves in tennis history, he defeated Guillermo Vilas to win the 1977 Australian Open, and in 1979 got to four in the world, reaching the finals of Wimbledon, where he lost a tight five-set match to Bjorn Borg. He won 16 titles. Upon retirement, his life took a troubling turn. He has been married three times, has five daughters, and has found himself in and out of prison for non-payment of child support, fraud, forgery, bouncing checks, and we talked about it all. Roscoe Tanner is today's guest. You're in Orlando. Yes. And, and when did that happen? I moved here about six or seven years ago, and before that I lived in Vero Beach for about three years, and then before that up in uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Are you doing anything in tennis? Well, yes, I do. I mean, I, I have some camps. Uh, we have what we call serving camps where people will, will join. And we do like six hours over a weekend of working on the serve from the beginning all the way through to placement, but all the way with grip, stance, everything. Um, and it's been pretty successful. We have one and two day camps. I When it was first proposed to me, I went, oh, geez, serving for six hours. I said, that, that can't be too too exciting. But we've had a ton of repeat customers, and uh, that's working pretty well. Gentleman you hear has been through the fire. 1979 Wimbledon finalist had break points in that fifth set against Bjorn Borg. He got to four in the world. He is the original Stanford player. He won 16 tournaments and has had a very tough time post-tennis career and I'm grateful that you came on the show. It's Roscoe Tanner, the original big-time serving Roscoe Tanner. I'm all excited to be on the show, and thank you. You know, it's hard for me to talk about all this tennis stuff without first asking you, how are you? You're you're 70. Are you 72? 71. You're 71. Uh, I'll be 72 this year, though, in October. But, uh, no, things are going well. And I have a daughter, uh, Lacey who is in tennis. She's 17. She's living with me here in Orlando and I coach her and um, she's a lefty with a big serve. Imagine that. (laughs) Where are you at? The last thing that I read was that you'd gotten in some trouble for driving without a license. Is that true? No, that that actually is not true. Um, But uh, I haven't had any problems or trouble for a number of years now. And uh, I'm enjoying teaching a little bit here in Orlando and working with my daughter. I guess I should probably ask you, so where does your tennis begin? I know that your father, everything that we've read is that, you know, you came up in Chattanooga. But how did you get good? Well, originally, yeah, Chattanooga or lived on Lookout Mountain. Uh, my dad wanted me to be able to play tennis. And remember, at the time when I learned, there wasn't pro tennis. Um, so it wasn't a thing of going on the tour or traveling the world, but maybe you could play Davis cup representing the country. Maybe you could get a college scholarship, 
my dad was an attorney and the intention was that I would be an attorney after, after school. But, uh, while I was in, in uh, high school, we had Jerry Everett, Chris Everett's uncle had the program in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And back then it wasn't called an academy. It was just called a program. And he had 16 nationally ranked players in Chattanooga, Tennessee without indoor courts, which is pretty, speaks pretty highly of what he could do. Um, and then also at the same time, my sister married a guy named Ramsey Earnhardt from California. He went to Southern Cal. He actually won the NCAA doubles with uh, Rafael Osuna one year. Um, but he was a fantastic servant volleyer, and he came into Chattanooga when I was 15. Uh, because at 15, I lost in the first on uh, national tournaments. I lost in the first round and the first round of consolation. But then at 16, I grew eight inches. Ramsey started working on my serve and serve and volley, and I was number four in the nation after that. Um, so that was a, a big jump between 15 and 16. Were you good right away? Did you just did you just take to it well? I was not that good. I mean, I was okay. I was like there was four of us that started out together. One became an All American football player. One became an unbelievable golfer, um, and one also was a tennis player like me, but eventually quit. And now he's in the stockbroking business. Um, but so the but the whole competition in Chattanooga was strong. Then I became a top player in Tennessee and around the South, I did pretty well, but nationally I did not until I was 16 years old. And then at 16, I started to make a move and do pretty well. And I became a servant volley player instead of a baseline player. And it suited my temperament and what I wanted to do better. And where did you start banging the serve with that, that quickie toss? Like, how did that come about? Is that, do you just, do you just kind of gravitate to that motion? Well, Jerry Everett, when he taught me how to serve, he taught me in the woods. Uh, he took me, it wasn't on a tennis court. He took me out in the woods beside the court without a ball and had me do the service motion, knocking leaves off of trees. And after a few weeks of doing that, he brought me back to the court and he said, Roscoe, now I want you to toss the ball where the leaf was. So I wasn't just tossing the ball up and going after it. Um, it's very specific to toss it to a certain place, and that's the way I was taught to serve, and that's the way I've taught my daughter, and that's the way we teach people in our camps that we do. And they find that it's not that difficult because the toss only has to be about 18, 20 inches long. You don't, it's like throwing a dart. Would you rather be two feet from the dartboard or eight feet? And you're much more accurate at two feet, and it's the same thing with a toss. And I did a, they did a study with Vic Braden on my serve, and he found that my toss, the ball stays in the sweet spot on the racket like five times as long. So because it's not moving, technically the toss is at, at the top is what the goal is. Sometimes I get a little nervous and I might be hitting it on the way up, but that's not what the goal is. The goal is to hit it right at the top. And I've taught my daughter that, and uh, she's a lefty and she has a big serve. And it, it's kind of neat to see it. Um, I was uh, I was watching her play a match, and a guy behind me didn't know who I was, and we we're just watching. And he goes, "Oh my God!" He says, "That girl serves like Roscoe Tanner." <laughs> <laughs> I went, "Well, you know, that's because she's his daughter." And and uh, the guy goes, "How do you know that?" I said, "Because I'm her dad." 
<laughs> but it was it was really cool because she does have my service motion and it's and a lot of people that have taken my serving camps find that it's not that difficult um it, it looks difficult but it really isn't it's easier when you were a junior though were you traveling international no, no. not at all um as a matter of fact I, I didn't do any international traveling um when i was my last year in the juniors um i was number one it was ranked number one, and they wanted to have us do a team to go to Russia to play in the Russian Nationals. And when they sent over all the names, I was refused a visa to go to Russia. Um, and my dad, when he, he had been in the Navy and was part of the group that went underground at Colorado Springs and learned to speak Russian without an accent and also broke the Russian code. Um, so I don't know if that had anything to do with my visa or whatever, but I, I was not allowed to go. Wow. You, um, you, you were banned. You were banned. Yep. You were on the, you were on the no fly list. <laughs> I was definitely not allowed. So, so when did you like first, like, who did you compete with on a national basis as a junior that maybe the names would be, you know, familiar to us? Well, one guy that I competed with since I was 10 years old is Jimmy Connors. Uh, Jimmy How'd Connors. you do with Jimmy when you guys were young? I used to win most of the time. He was quite small. And so when he came to net, you could lob him. It was easy to pass him. Um, he got better once he got into the men's. Um, but in the in the juniors, when we were – my last year in the juniors, I had beat, played him five times, and I won five times. They were all close, but I won five times. So what prompted the, the the move to college and not just go play pro tennis? Well, when I was a senior in high school, it was 1969. And pro tennis, if you won the tournament, you might, you might win three dollars $400. So, <laughs> there, there it is, right? <laughs> so it was, not a, it was not a big thought process. And, and uh, Dick Gould was a tremendous recruiter at, at Stanford and wanted me, he told me that if I went, Stanford hadn't been good since the Ted Schroeder days and that we could basically, I could think of myself as the father of the program. Well, that intrigued me and it was California where all the good tennis was. So I, I did that and it's all history as to how well Dick Gould has done with 17 team titles and all these things. And so he's, it's, he's been amazing, but I feel like I helped start it a little bit. But did you get better? What was the college experience like for you? It was fantastic. Um, one of the things that, that I had. And, and great... by the way, caveat, you graduated. Yes, I did graduate you, from Stanford. You graduated. You're a college graduate, which even adds more intrigue to the story. <laughs> well, because most of you guys, you, you quit school and you go out and, like, you know, you turn pro. Well, an interesting story for me was that I did turn pro after my junior year. Uh, but in academics, I was one quarter ahead. Stanford was on the quarter system. And so, and I was invited to play on the WCT tour by Lamar Hunt. So what I did, I went in the fall because I wanted to go for the football season. And then in the winter quarter, I went to WCT. And in the spring quarter, I attended school. So I graduated on time. I just, I had turned pro after my junior year, which, um, in some ways, I'm, I'm super glad I did it because I played doubles with Arthur Ashe on the tour that year. Uh, so that was an unbelievable experience. But but also, 
I, you know, I mean, it would have been nice to be at Stanford one more year because we did win the uh, NCAA team title that year. And, and I think we were the overwhelming favorites to do that. So it was exciting. And, and all, but also you'd asked about, did I improve while I was at Stanford? And one of the things I can say definitely yes. And that was under Dick Gould's guidance. And one of the things that he did was when I played and practiced, I could not use my first serve. I could only serve second serves. And as, but I had to serve in volley also. And as a result, my, my first volley got a whole lot better while I was at Stanford, and that really stood me well when I played the pros later. I was just watching you. You know, I watched you play Borg at the U.S. Open, and then I watched you play Borg at Wimbledon. And I I, I loved watching the way you played. I, I kind of forgot how good you were. The way you move around that net, the way you stick those volleys – and your ground strokes were clean. Like you kind of didn't, you didn't really miss like you, where well, you got nervous at the back end of that match with Borg, but you saved three match points, but you played him right to the wire. But yeah. your that style was like, that's a great, like that style is just so bad to the bone. Well, what happened, um, Pancho Gonzalez taught me how to play Borg. Um, one of the things that, uh, we knew as a percentage player, nobody was better than Borg. Um, and so why play percentage tennis against him? Because he's better. And and you could see when he played Guillermo Vilas. Vilas was a great percentage player, but he was one shot worse than Borg on every point. Did you always play that smothering style? Like yes. once you Yes, always. Yes. Just smother. Yeah, the deal was that the first opportunity, go to net. That's, smother that's, and that's, crush. Yes, and, and so the, it was, and, and the and the rackets were more difficult to return. It's more difficult to return all those years. Yeah, um, you got a lot of free points off your serve, but your volleys were beautiful, huh? Well, I can attribute that to a lot of well, Jerry Everett in teaching me the volley, but also just uh, Dick Gould at Stanford making me work on it. Are you a believer in college tennis? Yes, uh, I think so. Um, and, and I think one of the things that was great for me, and it, I don't know that I can do that now, but when I played at Stanford in the summers, I was on what they called the Reserve Davis Cup team, the USTA had, and they got us in all the tournaments. And so the whole summer circuit of pro tournaments, I wasn't taking any prize money, but, but the USDA was taking care of the expenses, but I was getting to play. And as a result, I was collecting ranking points. So when I left Stanford, to play, I was already ranked in the top 20 in the world. So it wasn't a question of going and having to play, you know, uh, qualifying matches right, right, and all right, that. Right. I was in. You were top 20 in the world. You were still at college. Right. Incredible. That's- now, so what year did you start playing the majors? I started playing the, the, the majors as a pro in 1973. And- Turn pro after college 72. So I did play a couple of tournaments in 72, but 73 was where I really started playing. Do you remember like the first time you sort of like, and you mentioned Donald Dell. So he became your agent right after, right out of college. Yes. Yes. And what, what, what would Donald Dell say about you? If we asked him, well, he would say what he told me when we first did, I mean, that he could do a lot and he represented all the top Americans at that time. 
And he just said, go out and win. And he said, he'll take care of everything else, but go out and win. And luckily I had a pretty good, pretty good career. And then also played doubles with Arthur Ashe and we did well. So it was, I was doing well in singles and doubles at, at that time. But I mean, uh, Donald Dell, the original agent, you know, he was Stan Smith's agent. He was Arthur's agent. He was your agent. Now, did he, did he make you a fortune like those guys? He did well for me. I can't complain. Uh, there's absolutely nothing I can complain about with, with Donald. Uh, at the end of my career, um, I did switch to IMG. I met a couple of agents, so the guys at IMG, and I switched to IMG, but I can't complain about anything with Donald Dell. Um, he did a fantastic job for me. Well, what would he say about what, you know, what sort of happened to you? What would he, what would he say? Uh, he said, um, you know, things that happened that I did after tennis, I made bad decisions. Um, and one of the things when you make bad decisions, you pay for it, which I've done, but also it opens doors to other things you can do. And no, I believe that. But so let me just ask you, what was it like to be a pro player on tour back in 73, 74, 77, 81? Like you guys were just the, you guys were just like playboys, huh? Just like world renowned playboys, weren't you? Well, what it, what it was, I mean, I was amongst, I think, perhaps the best time in tennis um, because there were several things going on. I mean, we we were like a little traveling town. I mean, we'd go and, and beat our brains out to beat each other, go back to the hotel, take a shower and meet in the bar and have a few beers. Um, and it was it was a, a different style. Um, even the the reporters, um, you know, the Richard Evans of the world it's, and Lance Tingay, Rex Bellamy. They would be in the bar maybe having a beer with them. They didn't write that. They wrote about tennis. And now, with all of the uh, – everybody has a phone. <laughs> so everybody – I mean, everybody, you can't do anything. Um, and as a result, the players are pretty much aloof. They're not friends so much with each other, uh, but they don't have their own team. We didn't have a team. I had a doubles partner. And and um, that's pretty much the way it was. Dennis Ralston coached coached me at the end of my career. Um, but one of the things we did so that we could afford him, five of us hired him. So when he traveled, he was he was coaching five of us, um, which was pretty hard on him. But it made it so that we could afford him. Is there a moment where you can like kind of look back and say, "This is the moment I was playing my best tennis"? I'd have to say it was seventy nine. I mean seventy nine. Seven, I won. I won the Australian, um, and I played a great tournament there. But '79, that was my best. Why? I really think that I did more things well that year. I mean, I lost in the finals of Wimbledon, and I lost in the semis of the U.S. Open. Let me rephrase it, maybe. So you know, I've I've, I've asked this question to a lot of like great players, and I said, you know, I talked to Tim Mayotte. Tim Mayotte said, you know. I'd gotten myself into the best shape of my life. And this is the, re- and I, I was so confident that year or a lot of players we hear, they're like, you know, I had a great off season. I, I changed coaches. I got really, really fit. What, what was it about 79 that just came together for you? Well, I, I think that is a big one. I mean, Ralston, we did two on one drills, which are very difficult drills in training. We did those all day. Um, and so I was in the, the best shape of my life. Uh, and also, um, we had a clear cut path of how I was going to play and, and against the, 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 the tough players, I was ready. 
Um, I mean, when I walked on the court against Bjorn at the finals of Wimbledon, I, I wasn't scared of him at all. Um, sure didn't look it. Yeah, I knew I could get beat, but I also knew I had the style and the method. If I implemented it well enough, I was going to beat him. You looked really disappointed after that match. Um, how did that loss affect you? Made me go back and want to work harder. Really? Yeah, that was Baylor. When I went to Baylor Prep School in Chattanooga, that was one of the things that we were, you know, you, you bust your tail, you prepare, you do as well as you can. If you lose, okay, you lost. Back up, work hard, do it again. And that was in all the different sports that, for that school. And that trained me to have that attitude. But that's also what Dennis, uh, as my coach, afterward, he goes, look, it's a, that was a successful match, successful tournament. You gave everything you had, and he came up a couple of shots better. And for our listeners, Dennis Ralston is one of the you know most famous players and coaches in Ameri- in the history of American tennis and the history of tennis. How did he come into your program? Well, what happened was he was he was at a uh, place called Mission Hills in Palm Springs, California. Of course, um, I, I wanted to move to the L.A. area, and so I had a realtor friend of mine show me around Los Angeles. And it was too expensive. <laughs> it was like to buy anything in Los Angeles because I needed to buy some place to be a, a home. And and it was just too expensive. Well, then I looked in Palm Springs and there was you, you could afford things there. I got a great house, three bedroom with a with a swimming pool and, and you know, fruit trees and all this. It was really a cool little it wasn't big, but it was cool. And then I practiced at Mission Hills. And then it became apparent that Dennis would be the perfect guy because he's, he's in my town or I'm in his town and, and we could work together. And so first I was working with him when I was in town. Then I really wanted to know if he could, he could travel. And there was four other guys that we got together and we said, you know, we worked, talked to Dennis about how we do it. And we, we uh, hired him. Could you have done better? You always think so. Um, you know, uh, like you said, at Wimbledon, I was a couple of points away from winning. We changed a couple of points and then I win. Um, at the U.S. Open, I beat him in the quarterfinals, a beat board. But then I'm up two sets to love and a service break against Vitas Carolitis in the semis. And I lose that match. That's you're not up, a- you were up two, two sets and a break and Vitas uh, came all the way back. Yes. And, and 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 did you did you did you get tight? Did you get nervous? Did the crowd get behind Vetus? Like the whole thing, I'm sure. Actually, I mean, it, all of those things maybe came, but there was a momentum shift in that match um, that came right at that time when I was up a break and we we're having a tight game. He got mad and he hit a ball up the side of the court and it hit a lady in the box seats. And, and knocked her glasses off and all this sort of stuff. And they and it sort of created about a five to ten minute interruption, and they did nothing about it. Um, one of, uh, Frank Hammond was our referee, yeah. our umpire. Yeah. And earlier in that tournament was when Nastasi and McEnroe had had a thing, and they defaulted, or they, he def- he defaulted Nastasi for what he was doing. And Mike Blanchard, the tournament referee, came on the court and reinstated. Nastasi. Well, that's one of the most famous moments in, you know, tennis when Nastasi turned that stadium into a, it was practically a riot. Yeah. And, and what Frank Hammond said was told Mike Blanchard, look, 
you embarrassed me. I'm from New York. You embarrassed me right in front of my home crowd. He said, I'm not doing anything to anyone ever here. And that was when, when Vetus hit that ball, that was supposed to be a defaultable offense. Now, I wasn't looking for the default. I didn't I didn't really care. I mean, I was ahead at that point. <laughs> doing just fine. But, but I'm yeah. shifting there and and frank hammond wrote in his book later he said there's only one player i've ever screwed in tennis and that was roscoe tanner but but i guess my question could you have gotten more out of your body could you have gotten more out of your ability could you have done better probably Probably. i I think so because i i think if i had had the knowledge to train the way that these guys have now, we didn't do that. Uh, I mean, we didn't lift weights because only football players lifted weights. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of stuff on the court. We did a lot of jump rope um, and a lot of, a lot of things like that, but we didn't, we didn't have the knowledge to train the way they do now. So the way I've read the story is, is that you, you, you got hurt. And then that essentially ended your career. Is that true? Yes. I was playing again, and, and it was in my elbow. And a lot of people were wondering, was that from my serve? And it wasn't. Um, I was playing against Peter Fleming in Cincinnati. Um, and I think in the semis or some part in that tournament. But anyway, he served wide to my backhand, and I caught the ball on the tip of the racket. Um, and it sent a shockwave through my arm. And after that, my arm started hurting. It started hurting a little bit, and it kept getting worse and worse. So finally, I went to Dr. Joe in Los Angeles. I'd gone to other doctors, and they all said, well, it must be tennis elbow. Let's give you an injection. And I didn't want an injection. In those days, injections were risky business. So I went to they, – they took x-rays. They couldn't see anything. I went to Dr. Joe, who's the team doctor for the Dodgers, and he tied my arm up like this and then took x-rays. And then we came back and looked at the x-rays and it showed all these little white dots all over the place. And I thought there was some flaw in the film or something. He goes, you see those? And I go, yeah. He goes, those aren't supposed to be there. Those are pieces of bone and cartilage that are floating around in your elbow. So when you serve, you're grinding your elbow. That's why it hurts. So he did, he said that he didn't know whether it would be an arthroscope or the big cut in my elbow. But he said, when you wake up, you'll know, you'll see either a cast on your arm or an ace bandage. It's an ace bandage. I was able to do it all with an arthroscope. If not, you're going to have a long recovery. So when I woke up, I remember waking up in the recovery room and looking down at my arm and seeing the ace bandage and going, cool. And I went back to sleep. <laughs> and and it turned out that he cleaned it up. He reshaped bones. He smoothed down tendons and cleaned all that stuff out. And I've never had any trouble since. Wow. Yeah, I, so I could have gone back and played if I had really wanted to do that, but I kind of was tired and, and was just ready to stop anyway, and so it was a good excuse. There's a documentary about Boris Becker that's that's sort of buried, but it's on Netflix. It's And his life went off the rails, like, immediately after he stopped playing. Um, he got a waitress at a restaurant in London pregnant and, and, and it just all kind of spiraled from there. Is that, did your life kind of spiral after you got off the tour or were you already starting to have, I don't know, kind of behavioral issues? 
after um, after the tour, and a little bit of time after. Um, I was doing ESPN commentary after, and I was doing a lot of corporate work with conventions and doing all that kind of stuff. So it was it was not it wasn't immediately after I retired, but what happened was you start to think you have this opinion that I can do something and, and you think, well, and that's as an athlete, that's what you have to have that sort of attitude. But when you're in regular life, you have to realize there is sometimes you just can't do something. And what's an example of this? What do you, what do you mean? Well, if, if, uh, if I wanted to do something to, to say for one of my ex-wives or my children, if I wanted to get them something, I would, go the extra mile to try to do it. And I should have just said to him, no, I can't. And, and what happened was I do things that I shouldn't. Um, and I can say it was for the best of reasons or whatever it was, but, but it wasn't, it, it, I shouldn't have done it. And I got in trouble for it. And that's what, uh, that's one of the things that I would teach people. If you see that you can't do something, don't be afraid to just say, I can't do it. But it's just so crazy that you could be in the finals of Wimbledon, have had this incredible success, and then, you know, end up in and out of prison and, and have all these things. I always remember a guy that, you know, I come from a hockey town, and I remember talking about this athlete and that athlete. He said, you know, the four things that can really screw up an athlete is booze, drugs, women, and gambling. So which one was, which, 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 which four, which, which of the four is what took you off the rails? You know, it's always been, it's always been intimated that you had some of these problems, but I don't know if we've ever really heard you explain it were you a were you a drinker were you hitting the drugs was it was it gambling or was it was it broads probably women um, yeah trying to please them uh and one article tried to say that i was a gambler and what people don't realize is i hated gambling now um i used to because I, I i detested losing um i detested losing more than i did wanted liked winning so you and weren't so blowing your money gambling no. All these years, all the trouble. No, no, not in that. Not at all. No, um, I have an ex-wife that loved to gamble. And so she wanted to gamble all the time, but I would not even go into the, I would sit in and, and I love going to the buffet restaurant and just having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but women was your vice. Huh? You got, yeah. you know, it's funny. I, I, I talked to a lot of ex players and sometimes you see these guys and, and, they 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 think that the whole world is like a one big player party, yeah. And you and you're still the number and you're still the number three seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, I and what that led me to do, I, I did I tried to do a lot of stupid things, and that's that's where it went. I mean, the rest has all been public knowledge and history, um, and that was one of the things I had to learn. Uh, they said some people get it with a nudge. Other people have to be hit in the head. I had to be hit in the head. You know that we're, we're kind of at the back end of this. It's like, you've come through the fire, but what was it yeah. like to be in so much trouble? Well, it was interesting. You live day by day and uh, a lot of major, major things happened, uh, along the way. When I was first arrested, I was put in a, a jail in Germany and you were arrested for, it was a check that I had written 
that bounced. Um, and you tried so to buy a yacht. You tried to buy a boat. Yeah. And you bounced Correct. a check, and you got in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah, and that was something I shouldn't have done. Um, I shouldn't have even tried to buy it. I mean, I don't really care that much about boats, so I don't know why I did that, but it was to please somebody else. But so so then when I was arrested, it was in Germany. Um, and people thought that I was running. I, was in, I wasn't running. I was just working in Germany. Jürgen Fosbender had invited me to come over there and work. And so I was working at his club. And and uh, they put me in in the jail. Well, back in those days, they put terrorists in the German jails. So I was in in jail. My my cellmate was a Nigerian, but there was about four or five guys that were terrorists that were in there that wanted nothing but to kill the American, and that was me. And so I had four or five guys, or three guys anyway, one from Cameroon, one from Liberia, and my cellmate that were protecting me. Um, and that was, it, it sort of went that way all the way through. When I was brought back to the U S I was put in a, I went to Pensacola or St. Petersburg, Florida. And because I should have been in the lowest security, but because I was extradited back, I was in the highest security. So I walked through all these places where there was guys with blood and guts and they're fighting all over the place. And they take me to my pod. And I walk in, and these two huge guys come over and put their arms around my shoulder and say, don't worry about a thing. We've got you. You know, everything's going to be fine. And I'm sitting there going, fine for who? You or me? <laughs> you know, so, so. They well, now, did back. those guys know that you were, uh, uh, that you had done special things in pro tennis? Yeah. yeah, they knew exactly who I was. I mean, in jails, they know, the, the inmates know what is going on Way more than people think. think now, wait, is. Roscoe, this is terrifying. I mean, you had to have been terrified. Oh, yeah. I thought like Shawshank Redemption or something. And so, so, but these guys took me to the, the where my bed was and, and theirs were right beside me. And they we're having a Bible study. Would you like to uh, join us? And they protected me. They went back out and told everybody in the whole pod that, hey, this guy is fine. Don't bother him. And so that's that's sort of what happened, and that sort of thing continued all the way through everywhere. I mean, you did like a world, you did like a nationwide tour of prison, man. Well, no, what happened was I had that that was the major one. Then um, I have an ex-wife that thinks that she deserves all of my dad's money. Um, my dad did well, and she thinks that that she should get all of that. And he very specifically set it up so that it can't go to her um, so or, or any of the other ex-wives. So, um, so, you, so you've got three ex-wives and uh, a woman who you had a child with that got you in a lot of trouble, a paternity situation. Yeah. Roscoe, man, that is a lot of trouble, baby. Well, it, it's it's been actually, I mean, I can say, yes, a lot of trouble, um, a, lot, a lot of different things, but it has taught me very well. So I, I, I'm not going to be um, feeling bad. I mean, I feel bad about it and all that, but I'm happy to what the things that it's taught me and the things that I can pass on to other kids. You know, it's crazy. I, I, I asked, um, I spoke to Trey Walkie and a few others 
before getting ready for this interview. And I said, so what was it? Was it, was he doing like, you know, cocaine and, and escort? And then they're like, no, 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 no. He just, he was like this charming guy that just, just, just kind of got in trouble with like debt and, and, and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I can't believe that could only be it. I mean, were you messing up with drugs? Were you messing up with booze? No, there, no. no not really. There was, um, with my, the second wife, um, she had been in a nightclub business, and I was introduced to, to drugs, uh, but I didn't. It, it didn't remain with me. It didn't stick with me for a long time. You weren't uh, like a big drug guy. No, mm-mm. So, so none of that. I I can't use that as my excuse. <laughs> and and uh, uh, just uh, you know, you get this thing as an athlete that you can do anything. You know, I'll fight it, and I'll I can do anything. Well, I had to learn that you don't fight it. If you if you something you can't do, don't do it. Do you and, think and- that? there's do you think have you ever like gone to like therapy have you ever like thought maybe there's some chemical imbalance some kind of mental issues that you know led you to like kind of mess it up so bad well the the, i mean while you're in jail they have different programs and things that you can get involved with and i got involved in a bunch of those um and they were very good for me uh, but that's where you like well, a lot of people tend to try to blame somebody else or try to put blame on this or blame on that. I don't. The decisions that were made were mine and and I made them. So I'm not going to blame it on who when I was trying to do something for someone and couldn't do it and still pursued to try to do it. I'm not going to blame them. That was my choice. Um, and so, oh, I mean, they may have a hand in it or whatever, but it's not it's not their fault. It's mine. I know you have a daughter who was working at the USTA and now she's with IMG. They also like very angry with you. I have a good relationship with her. Um, and we communicate here at some tournaments when she's working. Um, and then my oldest daughter, uh, comes down and visits her occasionally. Um, and the second oldest is it lives in California and has some kids and we exchange. I mean, we don't talk all the time, but we do talk. So it's not all of the things that they try to say that their relationships are ruined or whatever. They're not. They're fine now. How did you put it back together? This is this is interesting, man. We all we've read is that you it would, that everyone was angry with you. That's not true. Well, no, they were angry, and they had a right to be angry. Um, but after that, we have been in communication. We have talked. I see uh, the one that works with IMG. I'll see her at the U.S. Open sometimes, or see her at Wimbledon, or I'll see her at the Miami tournament. Um, so we don't, we, there's not a, a, we know that there's a past, they have to get past it, but we, we will talk and see each other, and that's not a problem. Um, and then I have a 17-year-old that lives with me. So uh, I've got all the, a lot of daughters, <laughs> no sons, but a lot of daughters, and, and um it's it's not bad. And what do you do for money? How like what's what level of broke are you? Are you you you, you do you have some money in the? Did you, how were you able to pull out of all this 
I, I, I teach a little bit and also have social security. Well, <laughs> but, but so I teach some, I don't, I've never lived a fancy lifestyle. Um, I just don't. Uh, so I think, I mean, I have money that keeps coming in. I've worked on, I work on stuff, do different things. We've got different projects that we're doing. These camps seem to be pretty successful. Got some clinics. I'm going to start doing one in Tucson. People are wanting to, uh, I've got a group that wants me to do uh, a documentary. Um, so well, there's different things that are happening. Uh, no, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. Do you say, what do you say? What did you say about documentary? But there's a group that wants to do a documentary and then maybe a movie. And are you, is that in motion? It's in talks. Are you trying to get paid? Is that, is that sort of the, that's not what I'm trying to get paid. Um, that would be something that they would pay for. Um, I didn't seek it out, uh, so they seek they sought me. So, uh, and I have an agent that's talking to them about that, not me. You have an agent, yes. Roscoe Tanner is making moves in Hollywood. <laughs> no, I don't know about that, but there are. I mean, I do have an agent that they're talking with. Um, there's also a group that wants me to do a series of clinics around the country. Um, but all of them are being run through the agent so that it's done properly. It's been written that, you know, you got money from some of your, some of the friends, Borg and Stan and, and others. Have you ever spoken to them? Do you, have you ever, you know, made a call and said, Hey man, you know, I, I messed it up pretty bad and I'm great. I'm truthfully very sorry. Well, that's true. And also they've been paid back. You've paid back those people. Yes. How did you do that? When my dad died, it was Uh in, we took some of his money that, that I inherited and paid them. I see. But that's never been written about, has it? (laughs) <laughs> so so you you when your father passed your dad lived till he was in his 90s i believe yes that's true so your dad actually wasn't so angry at you that he didn't he didn't cut you out of the will no 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 he didn't he never did you ever have a you know make a mea culpa to your father did you ever speak to him well we spoke all the time as a matter of fact he came and visited me when i was in jail Many times, so it's not. I mean, the the thing of that everybody turned on me. That's just not true. What were the conversations like? Well, we just talked about you know how am I doing? What's he doing? What's happening? Normal conversations. Yeah. What about Stan? Did you ever speak to Stan? Yeah, I've spoken to Stan numbers of times. What's that like? it's fine. He, he's asked what I'm, what I'm doing, what's happening. Um, I talked to him about my daughter playing tennis. It's normal conversations. So it sounds like your daughter's got a shot that she's a good player. Where, where, where what's the story with that? She, she, is, made, she does. For our listeners, she, uh, he just made a Roscoe just made a sort of a face like, yo, she's, she's pretty good. <laughs> she is. Uh, she's, she's fast. She's about 5'9", almost 5'10", but she's very fast and strong. In other words, very powerful. Um, she has a huge forehand, a pretty deadly backhand. She loves to come to net. 
Um, and she has a she has a big flat serve and also a slice. She's lefty. What's her name? Lacey. And she was Lacey, wa- Lacey Tanner. Correct. Boy, you're a bad boy, Roscoe. You can you're you're a story of perseverance. <laughs> well, I tell you, Lacey, one of the things that she wants to do, um, she would like to play pro tennis, but she wants to go to college first and graduate. So she's got her head on straight. So so is has she committed to a school? No, she's just a junior in high school right now. She wanted um to go to Stanford, which is where I went. And she's her lowest grade, she takes all advanced placement courses, and her lowest grade is 97. So she's she's doing well. But and she's in the National Honor Society and all that stuff. Um and then so one of the things though that bothers her is a lot of this woke attitude um because she's she's not very liberal about a lot of stuff and stanford came out with an entire agenda um where you can't you're not supposed to say you're an american um you're because if you say you're an american that puts down canadians and mexicans cuz they're in america also so you're supposed to just say i'm a united states citizen and she was going well that's not so great and she doesn't necessarily want to be in that atmosphere. So she she's shifted from Stanford, although she still probably would love to go there. But she's liking schools like Georgia, Tennessee, some of the ones in the South. So I, I mean, I, I take a back seat and let her be the leader on that. So so I how did you pull out of the the trouble? How did you pull out of the problems? How did you pull out of the prison stuff? Like, how'd you get yourself out of jail? How'd you get yourself kind of moving in a better trajectory? Well, you you just stop it. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't continue doing what you were doing, and and when you get the opportunity, you just start going right down the road that you should go. And and it's it's not it's not a uh, thing. Okay, you get released and now. You're Start doing the right thing. It's not a it's not a deal of uh, difficult. It's just do it right. Okay. I mean, the last one I read, you were in your like fifties, and you were just kind of pulling out of some of the some of that difficulty. That was twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, seventeen years ago or so. So yeah. have you been good for seventeen years, or you've been just okay? No, I've been fine. Uh, one of the things that um, I believe I read the Purpose Driven Life book and that all the different things that happen in your life lead you to where the, some of the things you're supposed to do. Well, one of the things through my career by playing doubles with Arthur, I saw the National Junior Tennis League, which is urban tennis um, of trying to teach kids in the ghetto, essentially tennis. And one of the things that they did in that they was it was good, except that they had like 200 kids for three pros. And that doesn't work. Um, the rich kids are four kids to a pro. And so what I, then when I was in my troubled times, I saw kids that were in jail were unbelievable athletes, but they couldn't write a letter home to their mom. I had to do that for them. And so I said, geez, if these guys, these athletes that I see here, if they had applied themselves to tennis instead of what they caught caught doing they might have been unbelievable tennis players so i said my thing is to 
teach kids that don't have anything tennis and treat them like they're the rich kids. So we've done some of that. I believe that you've done good things, man. I don't, I, 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 you know, I don't, I believe that, you know, in other words, it's been um, stuff where, I mean, I was teaching in Vero beach quite a bit. Um, And then when I came here to Orlando, I was teaching at a club up in winter park uh, quite often got associated with a church down here in Kissimmee and, and uh, that's working pretty well. And slowly what we're trying to do, they have a bunch of land and what we're trying to do is get permits to be able to put in tennis courts and some of the other things. At your church. Yeah. It's a church called the rock church. They have about 20 acres of land um, and they work with a lot of kids that don't have much. Now I've read that you're like, you found Jesus and you're very religious. Is that true? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I know. And I don't put it quite that way that I found Jesus. Uh, but what I would have the tendency to say is, yes, I am a believer. Jesus is the son of God and God made all this stuff. And I found that while I was in the German jail. You know, I don't want to belabor anything. And I appreciate you taking all this time. What's the moral of the story? What, do you, what, what advice do you have for the rest of us that are trying to, you know, not muck it up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the the big thing is is like I've said a couple of times, fight hard and do the things you can do, but don't promise and don't try to do the things that you can't. You know, be willing, be willing to say no. And and you know, because um as an athlete, you learn and you learn to fight, 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 never give up, keep going, keep going. That's fine. But there are times in life when that's not fine. What are your regrets? Making those mistakes. What mistakes? Come on, tell us. (laughs) Promising people that I could do something and trying to do things that I couldn't. You know, on my show, we 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 do. I changed my format to do this show today because I just felt like this was a unique, a unique situation. But. I have sort of a fun thing we do called the 10 ball scramble. I just say something and you just say what comes in your mind. And it's, you know, it's tennis stuff. Um, We go quick. So this is the 10 ball scramble. You ready? Yeah. Your favorite tournament. Wimbledon. Your favorite city. London. Five set tennis. Best of five set tennis. It's the best way for the majors. Your favorite player growing up. Rod Laver. Your favorite player now? Roger Federer. Medical timeouts? Not used to them. When should a player poach? As the other person's hitting the ball. As the ball's being hit, you got to make the move. You move on the you move on the stroke. Yes. Don't move too soon. Right. Don't move but too don't, late. Don't move too late either. The best, the the most difficult opponent you ever had? Laver. I thought you were going to say yourself. (laughs) No. Your best moment in tennis? Australian Open, 77. Your worst moment in tennis? When I lost to Connors at the U.S. Open, I lost like 2-2-1. Bad moment. That's a bad one. Still sting, still stings. In front of the whole stadium, and he just got crushed. <laughs> Not a good feeling. 
No. Um, what's the story behind that curly hair you had in 79? Did you get a perm? Yes. What happened? Um, I have very straight hair. And when I sweat, it drops beads of sweat right n- near my eyes. So I'm constantly doing like this. And so the girl that cuts my hair at that time in Palm Springs, I said to her, you know, what can I do to stop this? She said, well, I can give you a body wave that will get your hair out of there and it won't. <laughs> and I said, body. I had an vision of what a body wave was. And so she then said, okay, now your next appointment, we'll give you the body wave. Well, it came out like an afro. And, and, I said, rid of it. She can't. That's what she said. You can't. That's why you call it a perm. <laughs> and so it's just got to grow out. And so then from there, that was in January, I went to the uh, tennis trade show, the national trade show in Miami. And I walk in to the various companies that I'm going to be representing there. And they're looking at me and they're going, oh my God. They said, we're taking pictures here for posters that we're going to do, which means you got to keep that hair for the whole year. And I go, well, I don't have many choices anyway. So that was how it ended up being curly, that curly, for the whole year. Because when they undid it, you know, they unpull out the curlers and you're sitting under that uh, dryer or whatever. And you come out and you're, you get the first view. And you're going, oh, God. But it did it did correct the, uh, the sweat problem. No, it, the sweat didn't get in my eyes. Did, 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 did your fellow players bust your chops a little bit? Well, it was popular at that time, and Ralston was my coach, and Ralston got a hair, got a, a perm. So he got his hair curled. So it was kind of like, and sure, which Stewart, it was, it was kind of going around that some of the guys were doing it, so I didn't get that much trouble. Now, um, what was your best endorsement deal? Is there one that sticks out? Tikini. Sergio Tikini, and also... Uh, Why was that tour- a great deal? I mean, you were in, you look great in that tikini uh, in '79. That's for sure. Well, they had they had tremendous clothes, and I got to you know spend time with Sergio Tikini, and and I got to go to the factory in Milan, and and just it was it was really a good relationship. And then uh, the other one that would be really fantastic was being the touring pro for Kiowa Island, because I had a I had a condo there. It was great going there. What I mean, what a fantastic resort. And I was part of the design team that designed that island because when the Kuwaits bought it and there was nothing there but an old plantation in ruins from the Civil War. Other than that, it was snakes and jungle. And so I was part of the team that got to help design all the different tennis facilities and things that are there now. Listen, this has been terrific. What I what I know is what I'd read. You've been through the fire. I I hope that you are on a you know a pleasant and enjoyable path. You know I really hope that maybe you know we see you out and about at some of the tournaments. Um, you know moving forward, it seems like you've been a little scarce. Well, I just I mean it's not it's it's not intentionally scarce. It's just I haven't sought publicity. Um, but now, I mean, I am going to start, I'm probably going to go down to the Miami Open and spend some time there. And and I have been, uh, a couple of times now, I've been to Wimbledon and a couple of times to the U.S. Open. So I, I've been coming a little bit. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a person that necessarily seeks 
to be uh, in, in the public and all that kind of stuff. It, you know, I just I'm enjoying my family. I'm enjoying my daughter and enjoying what I do. Like I said, thank you very much. You know, it's been a very serious chat and uh, you didn't have to speak so plainly about some of these things. So I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you very much. Roscoe Tanner, you are released. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Craig. This has been fun. Thank you. Huge thank you to Roscoe Tanner. Thank you to Deodora. See them at Deodora.com. Be on the lookout, as there will be more to come. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. Back next time with more of the most interesting voices in this world. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.